Thanks so much, Nate and Alice. That was wonderful as always. Pastor Craig concluded our Advent series last week, and next week we're actually actually going to be jumping back into the Gospel of John, which is where we, we left off back in March, so looking forward to being back there. And anyway, we have an in-between week here, and I have the privilege of, of leading us in this one-off sermon, if you will, and uh, I certainly hope you find it beneficial. It's interesting when you recognize universal desires in the human race, you know, where it doesn't seem to matter the, the time or the culture, you, you find humans striving for or pursuing these particular desires. And, and one of those is a desire for transformation. And we see this played out in a multi multitude of ways. For example, at the root of just about every religion is the desire to transform in some way in order to earn salvation, to, to fight against our natural impulses and earn our way through good works to, to heaven or paradise or Valhalla or the oneness or, or whatever. Personal transformation through individual effort is, is virtually universal in world religions. Or look at the culture wars prevalent these days. People engage in the power structures of society or endeavor to tear down the power structures of society in an attempt to, to transform the culture into whatever they think will be better. Or how about individually? How many billions of dollars are spent each year on transforming ourselves physically, whether that's through diet or exercise or surgery? And, and of course, the same amount is spent on self-help books and, and therapists to help us transform mentally, to overcome hurdles that might be preventing us from, from again, transforming ourselves and our lives into whatever it is that we think is going to bring us happiness or satisfaction. It, it really is fascinating to consider how the desire to transform is virtually universal, yet that's one of the reasons I adore God's inerrant life-giving word so much. Not that the, the transformations I just listed are, are just worthless or inherently bad, but God's word reminds us that ultimate transformation only happens from the inside out, and that only happens as a result of the work of God in us. He's the only one who can ultimately transform us. It's all his work, not ours. But the beauty of that truth is as a result, he gets all the glory and then we receive what we so desperately desire, which is life and fellowship and salvation and true lasting transformation through him. And so that is what we're going to be digging into today is the spirit through Paul gives us a master class on this in Titus chapter three. If you would turn there, if you have not made your way there Alrighty, Titus chapter 3. So Titus chapter 3, picking up in verse 3, here's what the word of the Lord says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in verse 3, Paul begins by reminding his readers and thus all believers of what we once were before we were saved and what we would all still be if we were not saved. And, and frankly, this is a pretty, a pretty depressing, disgusting list that he provides. And it's really a, a perfect summary of what we see played out in the world every day, which is really just a result of what's going on in the hearts of unbelievers every day. So let's check this list out. He begins by saying, for we ourselves were once, like I just said, reminding all who are now saved, this is what once defined us all because this is what defines everyone who is not in Christ. And first on his list of what we once were is foolish. Now, this is an interesting word. We, we could easily pass by this and, and think it's kind of benign you know, if we were going to call somebody a name fool, probably not at the top of our list. We have much stronger epithets to offer than that. But in scripture, to be called a fool is actually about as bad as it gets. And here's why. You might recall Romans chapter 1, which is this, this devastating description of the process that takes place when, when people and societies abandon God. And in its description in verse 19, it says, even though God obviously exists, all you have to do is look at the intricacies of the universe to know that. But instead of recognizing and living in light of that obvious truth, as verse 18 says, we suppress the truth. So it's not that we couldn't figure it out because we don't have enough evidence. It's not that we're ignorant. It's that we know the truth and we choose to suppress it to bury it, to run away from it, and to create our own truth, create our own reality. And so the result is verse 21. For although, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise... They became fools. And so there you have it. Although the world loves to claim how wise and sophisticated it is and all of its theories and rationalizations of rejecting God and putting ourselves in his place, the reality of suppressing the truth is we become fools. And we can actually be nothing other than that because we're choosing to live in a lie. We're choosing to live in a false reality of our own making. So we become fools who, as Christ said, love the darkness rather than the light. But this is where it gets truly devastating. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, unbelievers, referring to, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the, the little g God of this world is Satan, who's behind every anti-God system. And so if we suppress the truth and we reject God, we choose to live in the darkness and we become fools. And as, as a result, Satan keeps us in the dark, blinding our minds so that we can't even see the light of the gospel. The world hates the gospel. The world hates Christ and everything he stands for because they're blinded by Satan. Now, you might be thinking, well, Hold on a second here. This is totally unfair. Satan is blinding me. How can I be held responsible? But it's not unfair because that only happened, again, going back to Romans 1, verse 24, because therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. 
Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God gave them up. One of the most horrifying judgments of God is when he says, you want to reject me and live in the darkness despite my, my love, my graciousness, my sending my son to die for you? Okay, you can have it. I'm turning you over to your desires. And the frightening result is we love the darkness, we're blinded by Satan, we live in sin, and we're headed towards certain eternal death. Simply put, we become fools. So that's why being called a fool in Scripture is about as bad as it gets, which again is what we once were. Next on the list of, of what we once were is disobedient. In other words, anti-God's word and authority that he has established for our good. Again, this is, this is the result of suppressing the truth and becoming fools. Just like Adam and Eve, we too reject God's word and we replace it with our own word. We don't, we don't have to listen to, uh, listen to or obey God or anyone for that matter. We're our own gods. We obey our own word. And we're going to come against anybody who threatens that word. God certainly being at the top of the list. That's the original sin. And it's, it's as prevalent today as ever before as we see the devastation and, and chaos that results from rejecting and disobeying God and his word. The next two items on the list explain at least in part why this is so prevalent. It says because we're led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. One of the most damaging results of rejecting God, who is truth, both, both for individuals and society as a whole, is that we're easily led astray. When you believe in, in God's universal truth, you have an anchor, a guidepost that informs everything you do and think, and it continually guides you in the truth and light and righteousness. But if you reject that, you're lost at sea with no lighthouse to guide you, and so you're easily led astray by anyone or anything that your fickle heart desires at that moment. The problem is just that, though. Your heart is fickle. It's deceitfully wicked and left on its own. It will lead you to follow various passions and pleasures. In other words, whatever you feel at any given moment. So if you want to watch that show or hook up with that person or cancel that friend or whatever it is, you do it. Because you've convinced yourself, you're not, uh, you're, you're your own God. You can do whatever you want in your world. But remember, that's, that's a lie. That's a false world that you have constructed. And if you were brave enough to peek behind the curtain, you'd see you're actually a slave in chains bound to obey your master. And your master is Satan and sin. I know that sounds incredibly harsh, but I hope we would seek the truth of God's word as, un as uncomfortable as it might make us. And the truth is, as God reminds us in Romans 6, 17, it says, before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. And so we're told in verse 12 to not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, to make you obey, because it's your master and you obey your master. And your master is Satan. Again, as it says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this word, world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit is, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's actually not true 
And that if you reject God, you become your own God. The truth is, if you reject God, you become a, a slave to sin and Satan. See, everyone's a slave. You're either unsaved and a slave to sin and thus death, or you're saved and you're a slave of righteousness, which just makes you more like Christ, which was the very reason you were created in the first place. And the result of being a slave to sin, as it says next on our list, is that we pass our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This list is so interesting, you know, to some extent, we're, we're just seeing this played out before our eyes right now. Right now in our country, we have massive amounts of people who, I mean, I hate to say it, but they're biblically fools who are disobeying God. They're held captive by belief systems that are antithetical to God. They're driven by unrighteousness. They're driven by the desire to have power or money or whatever somebody else has and nonstop hate of one another. You hate me, awesome, I hate you. I mean, that's basically the definition of social media, but it, we're even seeing that played out on our streets for months. But again, what, what we see on so, social media in the streets is really just a manifestation of what's going on in people's hearts as a result of rejecting Christ and his truth. Like I said, this is, a, this is a difficult list. This is a list that turns a mirror on society and our, on our own hearts, and it gives us an unadulterated look, and it is not pretty. But, verse 4, some of Paul's most theologically pro profound statements are found in that simple conjunction, but after this devastatingly depressing list of what we were like before Christ and the world still is apart from him, the spirit writing through Paul is not done. That's not the end of the story. There's more. Evil does not win. We're not left in the abyss of sin with no hope, but, I love that word, verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Man, those, those words are, are like a, an ocean of just clean, clear, cool water found by the guy wandering in the desert one step away from dying of dehydration. They're just salve for our souls in contradistinction to the list of horrifying sins and their results that we just ran through. We find these soul-satisfying truths of goodness and loving kindness. And it's not just any goodness and loving kindness. It's the completely perfect goodness and loving kindness that is so pure and powerful it's almost too much to look at because they're found in the very character, the very being of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's not just that Christ displayed true goodness and loving kindness when he came, he certainly did, but it's that ultimately he came to save us. He came to save those who repent and believe in him. But let, let, let's, not list, uh, excuse me, let's not miss the magnificence of that. Re remember who he came to. He came to us who embodied the list that Paul just ran through. He came to a people who, for the most part, rejected him, eventually murdered him because we love the darkness more than the light, because we'd rather kill God and be our own gods, or at least fool ourselves that that's true, as opposed to submit to him. Would you have come to save those people? I mean, I have to be honest, say I wouldn't. Come to a disgustingly evil world that wreaks havoc on one another and hates me so much that it wants to murder me even when I come in perfect love to save them? I saw a picture some months ago of a, 
of a protester holding a sign that said, if Jesus comes again, kill him again. And he had a, he had a shirt with a, like a picture of a stick man throwing a cross in, into the trash can. It just kind of made me shudder to see that. Although I'll give the guy credit, at least he's saying out loud what a whole lot of people think. And if you've read Revelation 19, it's exactly what's going to happen when Christ comes back. They're going to try and kill him again unsuccessfully. Why would I come to save these people? They don't deserve loving kindness. They deserve judgment, which is absolutely 100% true, by the way. And it's reason 1,462 of why we all should be thankful that I'm not God, because I would have never come to save you sorry people. And I most certainly am one of those sorry people. But God did. God came to save us even though it's the last thing we deserve, every single one of us, which is what makes Paul's next statement so profound. In verse 5, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So Christ didn't come to save us because he looked down and he, he saw a bunch of people doing a bunch of really bad stuff. But then he also saw this group of people that they were actually pretty good. At least they were trying. They, they wanted to do good. And, and so he came and he helped them out. No, Romans 3 says no one does good. No one is seeking after God. That's, that's why it's mercy, as Paul says. We get what we don't deserve. We get mercy when we deserve judgment. And that's what separates Christianity, the truth, from every other religion. It's why all religions can't be true. It's why all religions are not just different paths to the same destination because Christianity says the opposite of virtually every other religion. Every other religion has you in one way or another earning your way to salvation. Whether it's the eightfold path of Buddhism or through devotion and service to a god in Hinduism or following the five pillars of Islam or doing good works in Mormonism and on and on. Every other religion has you in some way earning your salvation. But God says that's impossible. No one can do anything to make them worthy of salvation other than admitting they're unworthy, repenting of their sin, turning from their sin to God and living with him as Lord and Savior. And when anyone does that, in God's mercy, they're saved, as it says in our verses by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, it mentions regeneration here. Regeneration is, a, is an absolutely glorious truth that's fundamental to the gospel. It literally means rebirth. And it takes us back to this idea of transformation that we began with. This is the, the moment of transformation, if you will. It's, it's instantaneous. The moment a person, no matter how sinful, no matter their background, no matter who they are, the moment they genuinely repent and believe in the gospel, they are changed from the inside out. Their heart that is dead is instantaneously made alive in Christ, and it has new desires. It's a miracle. A dead person is made alive in Christ. But as glorious as that is, it doesn't stop there. It continues. Renewal is also mentioned. So where, where regeneration is instantaneous, renewal is ongoing, lifelong. It's essentially the process of sanctification, which is growing more and more into the image, likeness, and holiness of Christ. 
In other words, it's the acting out externally of the transformation that happens internally. So when we were once foolish and, excuse me, foolish and lived according to the list that we already ran through, when we're regenerated, we're also renewed, which means we, we live new lives and we're empowered to live those new lives because we've been regenerated, transformed. This is, this is one of the signs of true salvation. I'm sure many of you have experienced this. Things that we once were, were totally cool with, you know, shows or music or whatever it is that we had no problem with, all of a sudden, we don't want them in our lives. We've, we've been given new hearts of righteousness that now hate sin, even as we continue to struggle with sin. And this is a process that continues throughout our lives as we're continually renewed and matured in Christ. And notice this glorious statement here. This is all the work of our triune God. God the Father sent our Savior, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for us so that we could be regenerated and renewed through the Holy Spirit. That is deep, glorious, Trinitarian truth. But it continues more. It gets even better, continuing in verse 5. It also says, Through Christ we're justified by his grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So these few verses really cover the, the whole of the glories of salvation. Like I said at the beginning, this is really kind of a, a master class on the essentials of the faith. This is just jam-packed with theology. And on that subject, let me, let me make a, a quick aside about theology. Theology is, is not just for, for pastors and professors and theologians. It's for all of us. Because theology isn't just about learning $5 words like regeneration and justification and impressing your friends with them. Theology is essential because the truth of God, the truth about us, the truth about our salvation, it is found in them. The, the very means of our salvation, the depths and glories of our salvation is found in these, in these words, in these verses that we're digging through right now. They're absolutely loaded with salvific, essential truth. And that's the beauty of theology is it's meant to, to lead us to eternal praise and thanksgiving of our great God who has saved us. It's truth that is meant to transform us. Theology is a lived reality. And the deeper we go into that reality, the deeper you know and love our ineffable God. So dig into theology. It is the heartbeat of reality. And now back to that theology. Paul next throws out arguably the most important word in theology, justification. I have entire books on my shelf devoted to just justification. It's such an essential concept. But to keep it at its most basic, justification is a legal term that means that you have been declared righteous. It's the opposite of a guilty charge. So here's the story. Scripture pictures a courtroom scene where God the Father is the perfect holy judge. You're on trial. And what's at stake is your eternity. So you know how in our society, depending on the charge and, and what state you live in, if you're found guilty of a crime worthy of death, you can either be given a life sentence or life in prison. Well, in God's, God's courtroom, it's both. If, you, if you're declared guilty, you receive an eternal death sentence. You go to the horrors of hell where you die forever. So the stakes are 
absolutely as high as they could possibly get here. And each of us takes our turn before the judge. And now, let's say it's your turn. Why should you not go to hell? Why should you be in heaven in the presence of God? And so let's say in response, you put on your, your best lower vo- lawyer voice and, and you go into a, a, a reasoned defense of, of how good a person you are and, and all the really good things you've done, certainly compared to all these other people. And, and you finish and you, you feel like you offered a, a pretty good case. I mean, after all, you, you're a pretty good person. I mean, most people would say you're a good person. If that's your defense, you will be held guilty for sure because the standard for life is perfection, keeping God's law perfectly, never sinning one time. And I don't, I don't think I need to argue the case that when God opens the book on your life, every thought, deed, word, action, everything you've ever done, you will be found to be far from perfect. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about all that being exposed about me. No one's perfect. No one's good. We do good things. But look at the world. Look at your heart. We're all guilty many, many times over, which is why this scene is so spine-tingly scary because there is nothing that we can do or say to prove that we should have life. There's nothing we can do to, to escape that eternal death sentence. And so when that becomes obvious, you sink in despair. You begin freaking out as you're coming face to face with your depravity and God's perfect holiness and what that means. And just when it seems hopeless, Jesus Christ comes into the room. He stands at your side as your attorney and he says, he, she is to receive life, not death. And just as you start to regain some hope, Satan is there as your accuser, the prosecuting attorney, and he starts laughing. And he just starts going down this never-ending list of, of your sins, none of which you can deny, showing without a doubt you do not deserve life. You are guilty. And Christ listens patiently, and then he turns to the judge and says, he's absolutely right. To which Satan smiles his wry smile, and, and you look at, at Christ in absolute horror, wondering, what kind of an attorney, an attorney are you? But Christ continues, and he says to the Father, the perfect judge of all creation, it's true that, that he deserves death, but I've taken his place. I paid the punishment for his sin. I bore an eternity of wrath on the cross in his place. And as a result, I have given him, a sinner, my perfect righteousness so that in your eyes, he's just like me. He's perfectly righteous. You see me when you look at him, his penalty is paid. And in me, he receives eternal life. And the judge looks at you And he says, to the horror of Satan, you have been declared righteous. Your penalty has been paid. You may enter into the joy of life in me. And you will praise God for that for eternity because you know you are only saved because of Christ and his work on the cross. That is justification. It's the very essence of the faith, and it is forever glorious. It never grows old. We will never cease to praise God for that. But as if anything could top that, it it gets even more astounding because 
God is so full of goodness, mercy, and grace. Not only do we receive the eternal life we don't deserve, but we, as verse 7 says, become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As Romans 8, 17 says, we become co-heirs with Christ, which is, which is just unbelievable to contemplate, but it basically means that the riches of salvation and everything that means that are found in Christ are ours forever. Not only are we, we saved, justified, which is forever unbelievable, but we're heirs in Christ. We're adopted kids of the King. I mean, it's, it's almost too much to fathom. Like I said, the, the, the whole of salvation is in these verses. I, I hope it's clear after running through this, salvation doesn't just include saying a prayer and then you're saved. It includes our being regenerated, given a new heart that believes in the gospel so that we're declared justified. We're not guilty. We're righteous. And through the work of Christ, through the work of God and his word in our lives, we're continually renewed as we become more like him. And one day we will enter into eternity in perfect bodies and enjoy the unbelievable riches of Christ forever as his co-heirs. All of that is salvation. And we're just scratching the surface. Again, this is why theology is so unbelievably wonderful. We praise our triune God. But let's remember, all that theology is to be a lived reality in the life of a believer. And the lived reality that all that incredible theology we just ran through is pointing to is this transformed life that is a result of our transformed hearts. And again, this is another thing I love about Scripture. It doesn't just give us these, these wonderful, lofty theological truths, the end. It gives us them, and then it says, now, here's how you live this out. Here's what a transformed life looks like. So we, we started today by pointing out the ever-present desire to, to be transformed and the various ways we, we might pursue that unsuccessfully. And now we know why all those attempts ultimately are unsuccessful, because only God can transform us from the inside out. But when we're transformed from the inside out, we are then enabled to live out his truth before the world. Permanent, lasting, satisfying transformation can only happen through God in Christ, working through those that he saves. That is the reality of this world. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means at least three things. First, it means living in perpetual gratitude and thanksgiving to God. So much of the, the strife and the sin in this world and in our own hearts, it's, so, so much of it's just a result of a deep-seated ingratitude. Instead of being thankful to God for what we do have, maybe we feel like ah, we don't have what we deserve. We, we compare ourselves to others and we want what they have, or at least we want to tear down what they have so they can be miserable like us. Again, as, as Christians, that, that shouldn't be us, which, which is not to say that we should never be striving to make our lives or the world uh, better. Again, we do that through his power. But there's a profound difference between that and then just kind of being disgruntled at God because he's doing it wrong. As believers, as we just ran through, whatever's going on in your life, 
man, we, we have so much to be forever grateful to God for, not the least of which, like we said, is that we have life in him when we deserve death. That, that alone should make us perpetually thankful. If we have him, we have everything. Literally, we're heirs in him of everything. Now, I, that, that's not to say that this life does not have heartache and struggle. I don't mean to minimize that at all. It most certainly does. But different from the world, in the midst of that struggle and heartache, we have the truth of our life and communion with God and an eternity in his presence to look forward to, which means even though we will have times of sorrow and difficulty, ultimately we can live in the gratitude and thanksgiving that we have in the riches of Christ and our salvation in him. That's a that's a truth, that's a lived reality that, that hopefully can help steady our hearts and our, our minds and our lives so that we're living categorically different from the world. The second lived reality of all that theology is, is that we need to check ourselves that we're not falling back into that list that Paul reminds us uh, that we once were. Now, make no mistake, although we are continually to be growing in holiness. We, we will never be perfect in this life. We're going to continue to, to struggle with sin until we die. But we can never be cool with sin. And we should be careful not to slip back into sinful patterns. We're to be living like Christ, which again, like I just said, means living categorically different lives from the world. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, we wear special Christian clothes that set us apart from the world. It means we've been, again, as you've been saying, we've been transformed from the inside out. And as a result, we function differently in the world. We have different values and priorities and we live differently because we're following our king rather than disobeying our king and following our own sinful passions like the world does. But, but here's the good news of, of our culture seemingly embodying these sins in, in just such in-your-face ways right now. It seems like our, our culture is just in this wholesale process of rejecting anything that has to do with God, and, and we're living through, the frankly, the chaos that results from that. But some of the good news in that is by not joining in, it's actually easier than ever to live distinctly transformed lives. Things that, that may not have stuck out in the past stick out now. Finding a spouse and staying married. Not using vulgar language. Caring for others, not just yourself. Using our mouths and, and our social media platforms for truth and grace rather than hate. Spending money on eternal things, not just temporal things. Not using explicit media. Not returning hate with hate. These are, are relatively basic Christian values that, like I said, at this point, stick out like blinking red lights and scream to the world, we have been transformed. We don't follow our own passions and gods. We follow the one true God. It's now countercultural. It's now the resistance to live in these ways and to raise your kids to live in these ways. So even though Christians in the church are, are maybe being maligned in, in ways that we haven't known, at least in our culture, in many ways, it's easier than ever to live as lights in this dark world, to live transformed lives that point to Christ. 
But of course, we don't just live as lights, but we proclaim the gospel of Christ whenever we have opportunity. And that leads to our third and last lived theological reality, which is we must show the same patience, mercy, and love to the world that Christ did and does to us. And, and this is one of the more difficult aspects of the example of Christ. Like we talked about, Christ came in love to a people who murderously hated him. And, and he saved a sinner like me who's proven over and over how much I do not deserve to be saved. But in love, grace, and mercy, he saved me. He saved you. So what right do we have to self-righteously, sinfully lash out at others who are blinded by Satan? How can, how can we who live in the truth of the light of Christ hate you know, sin against, act just like those who have been darkened by the futility of their mind. Now, that, that might sound incredibly arrogant to say that as if I'm, you know, sort of derogatorily saying, hey, hey guys, take it easy on them. You know, they're, they're idiots in the dark and we're, we're in the light. You know, they just can't help it. You know, after all this theology we ran through, I, I can't be saying that. It's the opposite of arrogant. The reality is we know what Paul said in these verses before Christ, we were exactly like that. We'd still be like that without him, and we're even like that sometimes with him. So we can't look at the world and hate them back, be unloving, ungracious, unmerciful, just disgusted at how off they are. Rather, in the power of the Spirit, we're to show the same love, mercy, and grace that Christ has toward us. We're to love when hated. We're to speak love and truth in the face of attacks and lies. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we roll over and we don't fight against sin and attacks on the truth. We absolutely fight. And that fight may look differently at different times, but undergirding that fight is the truth and love of the gospel. Knowing that the world is dead in sin and the only way to be transformed into light and life is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as it was with us. That is our only hope. It's their only hope. It's our only hope. Christ is the only hope of the world. So we do the most loving thing we possibly can do. We live and preach the gospel. That is the only hope. That is what saves people. That's what transforms people. It's what transforms societies to live categorically different, Christ-honoring lives, just like you and me who have been transformed by him. And ultimately, God is glorified as his people, saved by him, image him, and proclaim him to the world. We thank God for his transforming power in this life and the life to come, which we can't wait for. And it's all through him. It's all his work. He receives the glory and we praise him. And let's do that now. Let me pray. Lord, we are eternally grateful that you have transformed us, that you have taken our dead hearts and made them alive in you. I pray that, that through your spirit, through your word, as we launch into this new year, that we would be so overwhelmed with you, your truth, the joys of salvation and everything that means in you, that we would live lives of worship to you. We would live lives that point to you and we would boldly in this dark world proclaim the glories of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that others could be transformed, receive life in you and spend eternity in your presence, 
This is all your work, not ours, thankfully. We hand it to you. Pray that we would be filled with you and we worship you now. Amen.